Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for the way it guides us and strengthens us, strengthens us to be more like Christ. Lord, we pray that you may help us by your Holy Spirit this morning to understand your Son all the more as a result of studying this word. And Lord, we pray that we may come to him with a right response, a godly response, and know him better. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, what are your burning theological questions? Are there questions that you have as a Christian, maybe as a non-Christian, that you're considering and wanting the answers to? I remember when I was first starting to really grow as a Christian in my early 20s, I had lots of questions. And one of the reasons I think that I ended up in ministry is because I saw a great way to answer those questions is to study the word and to get paid to do so. It's a marvellous job that I have. It is so wonderful that it benefits me and helps me grow as a Christian whilst also getting the privilege of being able to encourage others and see them grow. And that's a great blessing to me. And over the years, of course, some of those questions have been answered. Some of those questions still remain. There are some questions about God's word that I have real puzzlement over, that I still uh, really don't understand, and I'm still searching for the answers, and there's some that I think I've just left in the too hard basket, and they're not primary level issues that are going to end up, uh, if I can't answer them, I'll walk away from the faith. They're secondary ones or even tertiary level issues where I just feel that I'm curious about them, but ultimately I'm not sure I'll ever get an answer to those. What are your theological questions? What are the questions that you have about God, about yourself, about the scriptures that most burn in your heart and that you want answers to? Well, this morning we're going to look at one woman's burning theological issue. One woman's burning theological issue. And that is the Samaritan woman who we've been studying in her interaction with Christ in John chapter 4. We've been slowly working through this passage together, which is found on page 1052 of the Black Church Bibles. And I encourage you to have it open before you this morning as we work through this passage once more. Uh, this woman has come up to a well and Jesus is sitting there and they've started to discuss water. And Jesus has been talking about a spiritual water and she is missing the point and thinking he's talking about physical water. And she's been quite interested in the water that he talks about because he says that if you drink my water, you will never thirst again and you'll have eternal life. And uh, we see that in verse 13. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst Indeed, the water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Once the woman heard that, we saw that she was ready to sign up. And we saw that in verse 15 last week. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. And then Jesus did something very interesting last week, which we studied. And we saw that he starts to bring up her sin for her to see. As she has asked for this water, he has then realized, uh, Jesus has shown that if you're going to get this water, if you're going to get eternal life, then you must start to evaluate your life and recognize the sinfulness of it. And that's what he did in verse 17. Uh, she answers his uh, command by saying she doesn't have a husband. And then Jesus said to her in verse 17, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands. 
and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. And we unpacked that last week, the really subtle way that Jesus brings this up. He's, uh, he's a real uh, evangelist here in, and has great wisdom in the way to provoke someone uh, to understand their sin, and we studied that last week. This week, we're going to look at her response. Her response to Jesus. Jesus has just brought up the fact that she has been divorced five times and is currently living with someone who is not her husband. And so then it's very interesting to see how does she respond to this? How does she respond? And the way that she responds is being, bringing up this theological controversy that is going on in her day. But before that, she actually acknowledges that Jesus is a prophet. And we see that in verse 19. Today we're going to be studying verses 19 and 20 together. Verse 19, we read, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. She's quite impressed. He knows a perfect stranger's marital history and the, per- and the perfect stranger's current living status. It's quite impressive. She recognizes then that he must be a prophet. And then she brings up something in verse 20. What does she bring up? She says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. She brings up this controversy that's going on in their day about where do you worship God? Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. She's speaking about uh, the Samaritans, uh, the Samaritan race, which, remember, is very much opposed to the Jewish race. There's quite a lot of hostility between the two. She says, We claim that we should worship on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem, a totally different mountain. She brings up this current religious matter to Jesus as Jesus has spoken about her sin. Now, why does she do that? He's just talked to her about her sin, and then she brings up this whole controversy that's going on in that day about where do you worship God? Well, basically, I think there are three main options that we could choose from as to why she does this. It might be a mixture of the three. might be one of the three options that are available to us. But I want to walk you through those today, and you can then evaluate which one she is doing, which, what is the reason behind her bringing up this controversy, and hopefully be able to apply something to your own life as you uh, reflect on your own sinfulness and how you should respond to Christ. So what are the options? Well, option number one is that the woman responds by wanting to discuss theology. The woman responds simply by wanting to discuss theology. If you want to see the different options that I have uh, nailed down as the main options to understand this matter, they're listed there on the back of your church bulletin. And the first is that the woman responds by wanting to discuss theology. Obviously, the woman can see that Jesus is an insightful person. And he's not just simply a wise person. She says, you are a prophet. You obviously know things that can only be discerned if you have wisdom granted by God. You don't just walk up to someone and know their history. People just don't do that. Obviously, you are very wise. So, I've got a subject that I'm very interested in, and you seem very wise, and I would love to know your thoughts on the matter. That seems to be one of the options of why the woman brings this up. She has recognized that he is a prophet, and she has this burning theological issue that she wants to hear Jesus' thoughts on, and so, of course, she brings it up. And what is that burning theological issue? Well, it's where is the right place to worship God? Where is the right place to worship God? See, the Samaritans and the Jews recognized that the Old Testament law taught 
that there is only one place where you are supposed to worship God, where you are particularly supposed to bring sacrifices for sins. In Deuteronomy chapter 12, that passage that we just read, Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 11, we read, Then to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling dwelling for his name, there you are to bring everything I command you, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, and all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord. God asks you to bring sacrifices for sin, and he says you're only to do it in the place that I designate, which means if you offer them in the wrong place, you are actually sinning against God. And so the woman wants to know where is the right place to do this because what had ended up happening is the Samaritans said that their place, and the place that was being indicated in Deuteronomy to uh, offer sacrifices is Mount Gerizim, which is in Samaria, where they live. Whereas the Jews are saying it's actually Jerusalem, the temple mount that's there. That is the place where you are supposed to offer the sacrifices. See, the Samaritans had actually built a temple at one point uh, in the 5th century BC on Mount Gerizim, which is where Jesus would have been able to see it while he's sitting there with uh, the woman at the well. They would have been able to see very clearly Mount Gerizim. And they actually had a temple there. But that temple wasn't in existence when Jesus was there with the Samaritan woman because the Jews had actually burnt it down in 130 BC. Not a nice thing to do, go around burning other people's temples down. Uh, But you can see how hostile these two races were to one another. And of course there was baggage left over from the Samaritans towards the Jews for burning it down. Now at that time there's probably, we would guess, that there would be some sort of shrine there. It wouldn't have been the impressive temple that was there previously, but Jesus and the woman may have even been able to see a building on Mount Gerizim that was the place where the Samaritans offered sacrifices for sin. Now, why did the Samaritans think that that was the place? Why did they think Mount Gerizim, not Jerusalem, was a place where you offer sacrifices for sin? Well, Mount Gerizim was the place that God had said, when you get into the land, the promised land, uh, in Deuteronomy, he said, when you get into the land, that Mount Gerizim is where you are to offer blessings. You're meant to recount blessings upon the people. And so we read in Deuteronomy chapter 11, it says, When the Lord your God has brought you into the land you are entering to possess, you are to proclaim on Mount Gerizim, that's a mountain in Samaria, the blessings, on, and on Mount Ebal, the curses. You're meant to pronounce the, the blessings from Mount Gerizim and the Mount Ebal, or Ebal, as the place of curses. And so this was a historic site. Once they actually got into the land, they were meant to bless each other and curse each other if they didn't follow the Lord. And so it was a historic place and the Samaritans said because of that indication in Deuteronomy that that's the place of blessing, then of course that has to be the place where you offer sacrifices to the Lord. Not Jerusalem, Gerizim. Also, the Samaritans said that an altar was said to be set up on Mount Gerizim, that God had commanded an altar to be set up there. And if we turn back to Deuteronomy 27, we can see their proof text for this. Deuteronomy chapter 27, which is page 196 in your church Bibles, page 196. Deuteronomy chapter 27. If you want to read the curses and the blessings, they follow on. You can read those this afternoon, uh, the different curses uh, that were meant to be pronounced upon the people along with the blessings. But in chapter 27, verse 4, we read... 
that Moses says, And when you have crossed the Jordan, set up these stones on Mount Ebal, as I commanded you today, and coat them with plaster. Build there an altar to the Lord your God, an altar of stones. Do not use any iron tool upon them. Build the altar of the Lord uh, the altar of the Lord your God with field stones and offer burnt offerings on it to the Lord your God. Sacrifice fellowship offerings there, eating them and rejoicing in the presence of the Lord your God. Here is a command to build an altar. In the law, from Moses, build an altar on this mountain. Now you might say, hang on, but it says there in verse 4 that the, the stones are meant to be set up on Mount Ebal. Ebal. Not Gerizim, where they was meant to, where they've claimed that they set up their altar. Well, the thing is, in other manuscripts, it does actually say Mount Gerizim. Now, as to why one says Ebal and one says Gerizim, there's different theories, and of course, the theory is that the Jews tampered with the text because they didn't like the fact that the Gerizims had a proof text that their altar was meant to be, that there was an altar originally set up on the site. Now. It's hard to work out who is right. Uh, basically, we follow the Jewish text, and uh, we don't follow the Samaritan text, uh, and so we have in our translations here today Mount Ebal rather than Gerizim. But they still claimed, according to their manuscripts, that it was Gerizim, that we have a biblical precedence that there was an altar to be built on this mountain. And so when we worship God, we're meant to go to that site where that original altar was built and worship God accordingly there. Also, the Samaritans believed that most major events of the patriarchs were actually linked to Mount Gerizim. It was a holy site because of that. They believed that Adam, uh, Abraham offered Isaac on Mount Gerizim. They believed that Abraham met Melchizedek, uh, the great high priest of God, on Mount Gerizim, and a whole bunch of other events. And so they believed that it was a really holy site. And of course, that then would be the place where God wants you to offer sacrifices. So, what's the problem? Well... The Jews believed that God must be worshipped in his chosen location, which was not Mount Gerizim, but of course Jerusalem. Now, why did they have grounds to say that it's not Gerizim, it is Jerusalem? Well, in Second Chronicles we read, When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace... The Lord appeared to him at night and said, so Solomon has just finished building the temple, and then God appears to him and speaks to him in 2 Chronicles 7, verse 12. I have heard your prayer and have chosen this place, Jerusalem, for myself as a temple for sacrifices. And then, of course, there's all these other texts in the Old Testament that talk about Mount Zion being a holy mountain and referring to Jerusalem as being the place of God's people, the place where he has put his presence. But here is a very clear text in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 12 that says, this is the place for sacrifices. Now why didn't the Samaritans accept that? Solomon had had God appear to him and told him that Jerusalem is a place, not Mount Gerizim. Well, the Samaritans only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. They only accepted the Pentateuch, the law of Moses, as the word of God. Everything else, the Psalms, Second Chronicles, uh, that talks about this, they didn't accept them. They rejected them. And so from Deuteronomy, they got some indication that Mount Gerizim was the place where you had to offer sacrifices. And so... 
there's this conflict going on between the Jews and the Samaritans about where is the right place to worship God. And that's what comes up in John chapter 4 in that passage that we've just read. She is pointing out the current issue that has been going on for centuries between the Samaritans and the Jews when she says, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Hopefully you've followed some of all that I've just said uh, from the Old Testament there, but basically if you don't understand that, just understand what verse 20 is getting at. Understand verse 20 and realise that there's a long history of basically two groups saying that we must worship God in two different locations. So in light of the current controversy that's going on, the woman may be bringing this up just because she's interested in it and wants Christ's opinion. And you can see people doing that today as well. If the woman is interested in theology, there's no better person to ask than a prophet, and particularly the Christ, if that's who this is that has appeared to her, to settle the issue. And let's face it, if I was to meet the Lord, to my shame, possibly, one of the first things I might ask him would be questions about theological controversies that happen in our day. One of the burning questions for me would be to ask him, should infants be baptised? Why would that be such a question that would come off my lips? Well, it's not because I don't know the answer. I know the answer. The answer is no. But for the sake of my brothers and sisters who are in Presbyterian and Anglican churches, I would like Christ to give us a definitive word on the issue so that they can then all come into the Baptist fold with me. And that's really a similar attitude that you see with the woman here, possibly. She recognises that there's two different people groups here who are saying that they worship the same God and she's wanting to work out what's the issue between them. Let's get a definitive word on this and let's face it, it's probably the Jews who are wrong and they will then all come to Mount Gerizim and worship God correctly the way that we Samaritans have worked out is the way. And so I think if the woman is doing this then there's some reason to commend her in this. If we have questions about theological matters, then who should we go to? Well, we should go to Christ. We should go to his word and settle the answer. And so if the woman is doing this in verse 20 to settle in her mind a theological dispute, then I can't blame her for the subject. She has recognised that Jesus is very insightful and she's come up to him and said, please answer this current theological controversy that's going on in our day. But is that the reason she brings up the matter? What's another reason the woman might have brought up the theological controversy? Well, that brings me to option two. Option two and option three are a bit shorter because we don't have to get all the baggage as to what's going on between the Jews and Samaritans at the time. But what is option two? The woman responds by avoiding discussion of her sin. The woman responds by avoiding discussion of her sin. The woman has just been confronted of her, of her sin. She's been told that she has been divorced five times and we know Jesus' teaching is that really death is, uh, death is the way, death, we're married until death do we part, that divorce really shouldn't be an option for Christians, for those who follow God. And she's also currently living with someone who's not her husband. She's been confronted with this. And as she's been confronted with this, what does she do? Well, she acknowledges that Jesus is a prophet but then changes the subject to something else. 
something that's more abstract, something that doesn't really concern her, and really is to do with national sin rather than her sin. She'd much rather discuss the sin of the Jews in not worshipping on the right mountain, or maybe the sin of the Samaritans in not worshipping on the right mountain, than actually reflect upon her own sin and have some discussion about that. And I think this, this is really the option that I generally in the past have always landed on. Because you can see that the woman is a little reluctant to discuss her sin, particularly when we saw Jesus tell her in verse 16, go call your husband and come back, and she just responds very curtly, I have no husband, she replied. She seems very reluctant to discuss her sin. And so it seems like she is changing the subject to somebody else's sin so that we don't have to talk about my own personal wrongdoing. And I think this is a reasonable reading of the text because we see the same thing happening today. Individuals often try to change the subject to somebody else's sin when they're being confronted with their own sin. I see this in my own life. I see it in the lives of others. I see it even in the lives of very small people in this world, my children. I see it again and again, pretty much every day. I was thinking when I was preparing this sermon of using them as an illustration and thinking about something that had actually occurred yesterday. And then as I was uh, coming to church this morning, I saw them doing the same thing again. And what is that? You hear someone say, your parent says to the child, what did you do? And it says, did you do this to that person? And what do they respond? The first words out of their mouth are, but she, or but he, and start to point the finger in the opposite direction. And I'm guilty of this as well. It's not just my kids. As soon as I find out about my sin, I like to talk about other people's sin to detract attention from my own sin. I like to bring in circumstances and and how it was led that I did that sin. And so I'm not really responsible for it because the other person kind of, if they hadn't done that, then of course I wouldn't have sinned. And so we see, I think, in this woman, something that we see in our own lives. And not just as individuals. We see this in, in corporate bodies as well. Churches are often more happy to talk about denominational differences than to talk about their own sin problems, discuss different confessions, discuss different issues. So um, things like, should infants be baptised? Happy to talk about those kinds of things, but not talk about things that are personally about us and are our sins that we need to deal with before God. We'll have great fights about which confession is the right confession to have, but won't be very interested in looking at the sin within our churches. You see this with biblical scholars. They're happy to talk about theological matters, but not practical theology. Talk about their own lives and how they're relating to God and the ways that they fell with God. Happy to talk about abstract matters, but not about themselves. And Bible colleges tend to do this, as you have these biblical scholars there, so-called biblical scholars at times, that talk about all kinds of theological heresies, teach you to write essays, but don't teach you how to deal with the sin in your own life as a pastor. They don't teach you how to deal with the sin in other people's lives, to help people have conflict resolution. It's, it's quite amazing. I went through three years of Bible college and didn't have a single lecture on forgiveness and how to forgive, how to get people to come through conflict resolution. I've since studied a lot of books myself and I have a methodology from the scriptures which I think works really well. I've seen it in my own life and in the lives of others. 
But it seems like Bible colleges will teach you all these kinds of theological abstract principles without actually dealing with sin as an issue. We're happy to talk about abstract matters but not about our personal sin. And pastors do this as well. We love to talk about the sins of other ministers and other churches and what they're doing and how terrible that church is down the road but not actually reflect upon our own church and our own failings within our church. And so the woman here may have been doing this that we see so readily in our lives, where when we're confronted with our sin, instead of dealing with it, we want to talk about somebody else's sin. And if that is the case, then this is not good what she is doing here. As I said last week, the reason Jesus brings out our sin, brings our sin up for us to see, is so that we can be saved. She wants eternal life, and he knows that sin needs to be dealt with then. And so she needs to be confronted with her sin and repent of it and turn to God. Not change the subject. Deal with her sin. And if she is trying to get out of it, then this is not a pattern that you wish to follow. But what's another reason that the woman might be bringing up this theological controversy at the time? Well, that brings me to option number three. Option number three. The woman responds by wanting to know how to worship God rightly. Maybe this woman is actually convicted of her sin and wants to make restitution for her sin by sacrifice. She knows that when you sin, you're supposed to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. And she knows that that sacrifice must be offered in the right place. She knows that the Old Testament, Deuteronomy said, you can only offer sacrifices for sins in the right place. And so as she feels the sin in her being brought to the surface, she says, I must Make a sacrifice. I must make restitution. I must go and worship the Lord rightly. This man is clearly a prophet. He must know the location that I must go to make such a sacrifice. And so she says in verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. And so what she's doing is asking Christ, Where do I go? Where do I make that sacrifice that I need to make for my sin. And if that is the reason that she is bringing this up, then that is highly commendable. That is the best response that she could have to a confrontation of her sin, is to want to deal with the sin by worshipping God in the manner that he has prescribed. And that is the case for us today too. When you're confronted with your sin, when you realise that Jesus knows all about you, all your all the things that you've done right, but also all the things that you've done wrong. The response should be, how do I offer right worship to God? And the answer is, of course, that you come through Jesus Christ. As we'll see in later weeks, as we unpack this a little bit further, this passage, Jesus gives further instruction about right worship of the Lord and who God is. But I'll jump ahead and basically tell you that if you want to deal with your sin, You need to come to God through Jesus Christ. You need to turn from your sin and trust that Jesus Christ died in your place. If you do that, then Christ pays the penalty for your sin and you go completely free. Christ's death is sufficient for all your sin. It doesn't matter if you've had 20 husbands or 20 wives. This woman had five Imagine if you've had 20. Jesus still pays 
for all the wrong that you've committed. It doesn't matter how bad it is. And so if this is the way the woman is responding, then we need to respond the same way. Each and every one of us in this room, we have great guilt before God. And as we see that guilt, we should come before God and ask, how do I worship you rightly? And then come with Jesus Christ and say, he is the one that has paid the penalty for my sin. I cast myself upon Christ and his sacrifice at the cross. So how are you going to respond when Jesus confronts you with your sin? Are you going to see Christ's importance and his omniscience and how greatly he knows you and then ask him some theological matter? That's one way to respond to the word as it shows us how sinful we are. Then we ask all these other questions and say, what about this and what about that? That's a good thing to do. To feed upon God's word, to get your questions answered by Christ is one of the great things that you can do in this world. And that's what I'm still doing as a servant of the word. Still seeking to understand Well, when you're confronted with your sin, do you change the subject? Do you want to talk about other people's sin rather than talk about your own sin? Try and remove responsibility for your actions by pointing to the actions of others. Or do you respond by asking, where can I worship God? Where can I make right with God for the wrong that I've committed? That is the best response. Yes, go to the word to answer your theological matters. But when you're confronted with your sin, focus in on that first. Answer your theological questions later on down the track. Maybe become a pastor and get paid to answer them at some point down the track yourself. But when you're confronted with your sin, the first and foremost thing you should do is ask, how can I worship you rightly now, God? I've worshipped you wrongly in the past. Now I want to worship you rightly. And cast yourself upon Christ. Is that what you're going to do? I think we do all three at different times. We change the subject, we ask about other matters, and sometimes we do respond rightly. What are you going to do today? Is there some sin that you're feeling confronted by God about, even in this last week, maybe this morning? How are you going to respond? Are you going to change the subject? Are you going to look at something different that doesn't really... It's not immediate for you to learn about that at this point in time... Look at somebody else's sin. Or are you going to ask, how can I worship you? I don't know which one the woman was doing here this morning. But you have an opportunity now to do what is right. And that is to worship God rightly. And I encourage you to do so. Let's come before our God now. Let's speak with him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we do recognise that your word is difficult for us to understand at times. And sometimes as we try to interpret it, we cannot make a firm conclusion but there is so much of your word that is indeed clear and much of it points to the great sufficiency of Christ to deal with our sin so Lord we pray that we may reflect once more from these two verses that we've studied today about our need to worship you rightly and Lord we pray that everyone in this room may put their trust in Jesus Christ alone for their salvation May they see that Christ is indeed sufficient for their sins and throw themselves upon him, beg for mercy, and begin to worship you rightly. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.